from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe, from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron, for three for the win, yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, Got a very special guest. He's a dear friend. He's also an, an NBA, a huge NBA fan. And he's, uh, if you follow him on Twitter, which I highly suggest, he is uh, on top of all of these moves, all of the details. You know, if you want to know if there's protected from 30 to 55 on that second round pick, this is the guy to go check out. He's digging for those details. Uh, Sagar Tricka joins us here, and you can follow him on Twitter at Blazers by Sagar, and that's S-A-G-A-R. Sagar, how you doing, my friend? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, of course. And uh, the last time you were on, we talked about uh, free agency this past off season. Yeah, and uh, you know. I uh, I feel like you should just be my guy for any of these, like, uh, you know, free agency, trade deadline windows. I feel like that's a good time to uh, have you on. So we're going to talk about the trade deadline that just transpired. And uh, I did a little prep in terms of I picked some teams that, you know, I know, I know a lot of people don't love the, uh, you know, the idea of winners and losers and that sort of, uh, you know, judging this stuff too soon. But um, I do have a list of teams that I liked what they did, a list of things that I didn't like what they did, recognizing that, you know, this stuff certainly uh, certainly can change over time. Yeah, and I think with the deadline like this year's where there were a few select teams that made a handful of moves and not too much beyond that, I think that that provides uh, an opportunity to look at this from a team-by-team basis instead of looking at every small cash-saving move. Right. So, um, should we start with the teams that I liked what they did or disliked? What do you think? I started with disliked and end on the liked at the end. Okay, yeah, yeah, and on a and on a positive note. All right, yeah. So, um, you know, I've been listening some, to some podcasts, you know, the Low Post and Dunked On and and some others that uh, you know recapped a lot of the trade deadline. And, um, the one team that I think was universally. Uh, Everyone was just like, what are they doing? Is the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Because it's like, not only what are they doing, it's what, what, why are they not doing anything? Like, why? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very perplexing. I mean, I guess it, it's not perplexing because the, the, the logic is this team is, and this, franchise seems committed to fighting to get to the eighth seed and get demolished in the first round. Um, And that's what the basic, the, 
the peak of this current core of, you know, DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic. The, the peak of that group was what, the sixth seed and losing to Milwaukee a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, in, five games. Yes, in brutal fashion. They got, they got eviscerated for the most part. Yeah. They, uh, they've, they've had some of these guys that they could have traded. And this is all after the fact that Lonzo Ball has had a bunch of, you know, terrible, devastating injuries that have really pretty much ended his career. I don't know if he'll, he may come back at some point, but it doesn't seem likely, or at the very least, he won't be nearly the same level of player. And so as soon as that happened, this team that I think even with a healthy Lonzo, even if their vision of this core worked out perfectly, they're like a, you know, maybe could win a round in the playoffs, right? If they're lucky. If they're lucky. Um, so now with with Lonzo having all of these injuries, they haven't sort of reframed their perspective and said, okay, well even if we were so high on this group that we thought they could make a a conference final or make an NBA finals without Lonzo, they should realize that this team is just not there. And it's evidenced by the fact that they've been destroyed in any playoff (laughs) series that they've played in their NBA or their regular season record has been very mediocre. And um, they've got, an aging roster. <laughs> so it's it, it's that much more perplexing. It's one thing if this team was battling for the ninth seed and it was a bunch of 22, 23 year olds, kind of like, you know, the Orlando Magic situation. You can understand. Right, or Oklahoma City last year. Right. But yeah. given Booch is in his 30s, DeRozan's in his mid 30s and is going to be a free agent, Levine is out for the year, Caruso's uh, about to be 30. There's. There's not some, uh, you know, um, light at the end of the tunnel here in Chicago. You know, so since they made their trade, they're all in trades, you know, acquire DeRozan, acquire Caruso, acquire Lonzo Ball um, in the 20, I believe it was a 2021 offseason. They started out that first season great when Lonzo was healthy. He then gets hurt and things fall off a cliff to make the playoffs. But like you said, you mentioned they get destroyed by the Bucks. It seems, and it's been the same since then, basically. They've been a play-in caliber team at best. It seems like they took what they did last year, where in their first play-in game, I believe it was a 9-10 game, they nearly beat Miami. Um, or maybe it was a 7-8. I don't remember exactly which, but they nearly beat Miami in the play-in, but lost. And then well, Miami, I think they, so they beat Toronto, right, in the first play Right, right. And then right. lost and nearly beat Miami. Exactly. That's what it was. And it seems like they saw Miami, you know, make the finals and then said, hey, we almost beat them in one game. That means it's worth running this back. Yeah. And, and it's, it's frustrating because there was some reporting from uh, Casey Johnson, uh, uh, one of the best beat writers in the NBA covering the Bulls. Um, he reported that ownership would be okay with them rebuilding and tearing it down and starting over. Ownership would be supportive of that. But the front office doesn't seem to want that. And that to me is is kind of damning. Yeah, because right, like you could at least say, oh, if they're making these decisions that the ownership is putting a mandate on competing for the eighth seed, 
then that, yeah, right. that gives that uh, management an out. But without that, right, exactly. um, without that, it's, yeah, it's like they're, um, it's, it's kind of the Michael Jordan syndrome as an owner of the Hornets, where it's like, there's no long-term vision. There's no thinking about um, trying to win it all. It's about like, can we win this next game? <laughs> and that's the only right. thing that matters, right? Yeah. It's incredibly short-sighted and, and it's it hasn't paid off and it's not going to pay off. Yeah. In all and, likelihood. You know, the rumors that I've heard, and I think it's been spread around, and like no one has given no one seems to be willing to actually say what the deal is for whatever reason. But the rumors are that Golden State offered at minimum, I believe, uh, Moses Moody, uh Trace Jackson Davis, and a first for Alex Caruso. I can't say what I've been told, but from what I've been told, it's, it's more than that. Yeah, I've heard as by, much by as potentially a, an additional first, so two firsts even. Um, and maybe more. Which, again, you know, you, I heard a lot of people saying like, oh, the Knicks should be expecting a package similar to like OG Ananobi. And it's like, why? And like Caruso yeah. is three and a half years older than Ananobi. He plays a less valuable position. He's not as prolific of a three-point shooter. <laughs> I would say he's he is a great defensive player. I mean, there's a reason teams wanted this guy for their, you know, he he was an instrumental part of the Lakers 2020 championship team. But yeah. um he's not some like guy like OG where you could say, oh, this guy is a core building block for our team moving forward. Like, you know, you're hoping you can get a year or two of good Alex Caruso play before he starts to starts to drop off. And so yeah. the fact that, and again, Chicago in the position that they are, what value does having a 30 year old Alex Caruso on your team provide you? It just makes it so that, yeah, maybe you can be competitive in the play playoffs and maybe get into the play or excuse me, competitive in the play in and maybe get into the playoffs and then get destroyed in the first round. Like that's, that's all Alex Caruso can get you. And then it, it it comes back to like, why is that valuable to this front office? Why is that what they're excited about? I think so this is kind of interesting. So I'm not sure you know this, but since that 2021 offseason where they acquired all those players, traded all those first round picks, since that offseason, do you know how many trades they've made since then? It has been very, very few as far as I know. And I don't think they've done hardly anything in terms of like at the deadline with consequential moves. Involving active players since the 2021 offseason, zero trades. Zero trades, yeah. They made one trade at the 2023 draft to buy a second round pick. That's it. Yeah. They have been almost completely inactive. And that's just, you can't win that way. There's You have no chance to compete in, in a league where... It's it's constantly evolving. You don't have a chance. You're going to be left in the mud. And it's the whole like being high on your own supply, the doubling down that is so damaging here. You know, again, like um, if this front office knew what they were doing, which frankly, I think like there's an argument that they're the worst front office in all of the NBA, um, given yeah. what we've seen. Uh, if they knew what they were doing, like, 
you get that great all NBA, I think third team all NBA season out of DeMar DeRozan, right? And yeah. you you again get crushed in the first round. That was the peak of DeRozan's trade value. They could have gotten a lot from him if they decided recognized, "Hey, Lonzo's out. He's you know, the the the, the medicals look bad on him. He's not going to come back for us. Um we're not good enough. Let's get some assets and and quick start a rebuild, they could have traded DeRozan and gotten pretty good value. They could have traded Zach Levine a year ago or even this past offseason for pretty good value, but they chose to keep him. And now, because of his injuries and and whatnot, they're going to get nothing for Levine. Uh, And then with Nikola Vucevic, you make that awful trade where you essentially trade Wendell Carter Jr. and Franz Wagner for, for Vucevic the pick that became Franz Wagner. And um, then you extend him on a pretty, I would say below, um, you know, not below market, above market (laughs) contract for, uh, for three more years at 60 million. And now he, if he, if they tried to trade him, they would probably have to give up assets to get off of that contract. So they've gone from having, you know, three stars that they could have, all they could have traded probably any of them at different times re- after seeing that the, the plan isn't working as well as they thought it would and get some stuff back and 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 get started on building the next great bulls team but instead they've opted to do nothing and now they've probably delayed the next good bulls team by another 5 10, ten years potentially yeah and you know i think after that Bucks playoff series where DeRozan had that great, I think, third team all NBA season, like you said, as a like, I I can understand that front office thinking, okay, in 2022, okay, we were awesome b- before Lonzo Ball got hurt, and then we weren't that great, but Lonzo's going to come back if they if they thought that, and once he's back, we can get back to being this really good team. But and if that's true in 2022, if you thought that, then I'm fine with that. I understand the logic. But to double down on it at every chance, knowing now that Lonzo Ball probably is not going to come back. I mean, hopefully he does, but you know the odds are not looking great. To continue to double down on something, on an image of what happened three seasons ago, or two and a half three seasons ago, it's just, it's, it's wishful thinking. Yeah. And again, going back to, circling back to Caruso, because that was really the thing at this specific deadline. Well, not just him. Drummond, too. Yeah. A free agent on a one-year deal. Teams would have given a value for him. And now you're, he's going to walk, probably. But, yeah, but even that, that's probably seconds, though, wouldn't you say? As opposed yeah, to... Yeah, but... But, yeah. Yeah, but as a team that should be going to rebuild, seconds matter. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's really perplexing. The uh, It's... It's unfortunate. I would feel bad. I feel bad for Bulls fans out there. You know, it's uh, um, it's not going to be pretty for the next few years, especially if they continue to uh, just keep the same mindset where they're just, you know, chasing 38, 40 wins every season. Um, and we've seen with, uh, you know, another team uh, at this deadline that did some interesting things, the Detroit Pistons. Um, we saw with them that like, oh, they they very much. Um, according to Zach Lowe on his pod he did uh, earlier this week, 
they 100% had at least one first-round pick for Boyan Bogdanovich a year ago. And then now they're trading him for, along with Alec Burks, for, uh, you know, Quentin Grimes and seconds. Yeah. Um, I think that Detroit's front office, uh, General Manager Troy Weaver, he came out and said in his press conference after the deadline, I don't know whether he was asked about it or what, but he said, like, they had better offers last year. Yeah. And chose to keep him and took worse offers now. And and you, you could say that the value they got is not comparing last year's offers to what they got this year because they got value from that one year of having him. But even then, I'm guessing the gap probably is not. There's still probably a gap there. Well, what value did they get for the one year of having him? <laughs> they've been like, they've been the worst team in basketball. Um, well, yeah, not value towards winning. <laughs> they haven't done that. Um, but um, not even having him around. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, and yeah, having him around and be injured to for the first several months of the season. Like it's, uh, yeah. And with Caruso, uh, you, you know, I could I, I could very easily see, and that's the other thing about these these deals when you know a player has a year and a half left on their contract. If you're trading for that player as another team, you're getting Caruso for potentially two playoff runs, right? Right. Which has a lot more value than just, just one. one. Even if Caruso yeah. maintains the same level of play, which you know, again, that's not guaranteed either. No. Um. No. You know, uh, and it's not guaranteed that he's going to stay healthy <laughs> so that they can yeah. trade him later on. Um, but, you know, even just that of, OK, we only get him for one postseason as opposed to two means that I'm probably not going to be willing to offer as much. And I right if that if that rumor of that gold state offer is true, I highly doubt that uh, even in this offseason or next trade deadline that they're going to that a team will even approach that level of offer. I mean, I would argue that Golden State probably got bailed out by the Bulls front office for not taking that deal. <laughs> like, if, based on what I've heard, I, again, I can't say everything, but but if what I heard is true, I would not have made the deal that I was heard they offered, that I was told they offered. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, let's move past the Bulls, because, yeah, for, for me, they were the team that I disliked, uh, you know, their lack of moves the most. Um, so moving on now, let's talk about a team that did make some moves that I also, it seems like uh, the the NBA community is kind of divided on this team. So I'm very curious to get your take and I'll, um, well, I guess I've already sort of spoiled my thought because I'm saying it in the, the teams that I didn't like category, but I'll, I won't say how much I disliked it yet. Um, what were your thoughts on what the Dallas Mavericks did? I didn't expect them in this column, in this category. Okay, so this might be an interesting discussion, then. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree entirely. I think that there are issues to be had with what they did. I just didn't think they'd be here in like one of the, the most, uh, the strongest like, dislikes for you. Um, why, don't you guys, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, so my main stance on all of this is I think they are marginally better as a basketball team after the trade deadline than they were before. But my big thing is, you know, is it enough to matter? And then also is the optionality and what you could have done with those with, you know, with that swap and also that draft pick 
say, even this upcoming offseason is getting rid of the possibility of what you could do then worth what they got? And in my mind, no. Like, And, and again, to the people listening, they, they ended up trading um, and, and acquiring P.J. Washington from the, uh, the Charlotte Hornets. They gave up Grant Williams as well as a first-round pick in that deal. And Seth Curry. And Seth Curry. And then they also made a separate uh, a separate move to acquire Daniel Gafford, center for the Washington Wizards. And they made a move with the Thunder to make that deal happen by essentially giving up a 2028 swap and gaining a 2024 late first-round pick. So yes. they got a pick for a swap, and you could say, okay, well, maybe they got a first-round pick for what will ultimately be nothing. But given that Luka Doncic, I believe, could be out the door by 2028, uh, that swap could be really valuable, and you could be doing – it could be a you know Brooklyn Nets-Boston Celtics situation where you're giving up a top-five pick in the draft. I mean, not just in 2028, but in 27, the year prior where it's also a non-Luka Doncic season, it's after his contract ends, the pick they sent Charlotte for P.J. Washington is top two protected. There's a real chance that pick is top five. Yeah. And they're going to have a top five pick for P.J. Washington, which, like, I like P.J. Washington. I don't like him at that price. Yeah, and, like, given some of the moves that they've already done, like in acquiring Kyrie Irving and in acquiring Grant Williams, who then they shipped out, they, I believe, have sent out their picks from 2026 through 2030. They have no control over any of their picks in that time that time frame. So that sounds right. They um they've mortgaged their future and in my mind this team is Luca Kyrie and a bunch of seventh men. Still it's uh it's it's not yeah. a good situation. Like the team, just given the, the that top two is still going to be competitive. They're going to be a great offensive group. But is this a serious like, you know, moving forward? Is this a team that I would say is like a guaranteed top six in the regular season next couple of years? Like, no, I still think they're going to be battling for play in positioning. And do I think they're a team that could win four playoff rounds? Absolutely not. Behind Luca and Kyrie. Who is their third best player? Yeah, that's been the that's been the issue ever since they acquired Kyrie, right? And yeah, and you can. It sounds like based on what they gave up to get him, they think it's PJ Washington. Yeah. They hope it is. I'm not confident. I mean, let's say for argument think that he is the third best player. How does that compare to the other teams in the West that you're playing against? Oklahoma City, Denver. Uh, Minnesota. You know, Washington on those teams is not their third best player. He's their fifth or sixth best player. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, like when you, and that's the getting back to like why I'm a little bit lower on this stuff is okay, Daniel Gafford is an improvement over their backup center for sure. And he might even, I would say he's probably at this moment in time a slight upgrade even over Lively. Um, yeah. But is he going to be better than Lively in 12 months from now? <laughs> you know, with Lively potentially taking a year one to year two leap? Um, and if if the answer to that is like no or, you know, maybe no, 
is that worth what they gave up to, again, improve the center position, but again, the, the least valuable position to improve in all of basketball, I would say. Um, but to me, it's more of a temporary improvement even. Yeah, I mean, even if Lively takes the leap that you're saying, you, you're still with this trade, with the Gafford trade, giving yourself 48 minutes of solid center play. And there is value in that against Nikola Jokic, Rudy Gobert, and the likes. So the, like, the best centers in the league, right? In their own conference. Although there Gafford is, is not, uh, you know, Gafford has has talent and skill, and he's a he's a very good vertical lob threat, which is a good pairing with Luka, similar with, with Lively. Both of those guys um, are good at that vertical spacing, but... Gafford is not different from Lively in the in terms of like, oh, he's some great post defender that you can be feel right. confident in him guarding the likes of not that you feel confident in anyone guarding the likes of Jokic or Embiid or the like, but there are guys that are, you know, better suited at that sort of thing. And I don't think Gafford is one of those guys. For sure. I don't I don't disagree there. I think you're absolutely right on that point. I think I do think there's just value in in when Lively sits this year and next year that you have someone there who is not going to cause a big drop-off offensively. Now, do they need offense given they have Luka and Kyrie? Is that where they need the most help? No, I don't I don't think so. I don't think any sane person would think so. Uh, but here we are. And keep in mind, like, you know, Gafford has talent defensively, but he's also been the anchor for one of the NBA's worst defenses of all time with the Washington Wizards. So, um, you know, do I think he's going to just magically clean all of this up and make Dallas a, even an average defense? No, I don't think that's happening. Um, I think I think the point boils down to, is Dallas a better team now than they were last weekend? Yes. Are they so much better that it's worth what they gave up? Probably not. And there is some real downside years from now when – they were not like like what think about the Milwaukee, for example, right? They traded all their picks for Drew Holiday, won a title, but in that process got Giannis Antetokounmpo to resign a new contract. Yeah. They did the, the same And it was Drew Holiday. I think that's the biggest part of this. Right. Is it, it was Drew Holiday, a player that genuinely could be a third best player on a title team. Right. And then they did the same thing with Dame, where they traded for Damian Lillard and got Giannis to extend. And, and great, he's now no longer a flight risk. Luca's not a flight risk. You don't have to trade all your picks to try and keep him, get him to resign. He's still there. Yeah. Like, it's not like you have to be spending all your assets to try and get this guy to stay and convince him that you're competing. It's just, it's, it's overpaying for guys. And the Washington deal in particular, the P.J. Washington, not Washington Wizards, the P.J. Washington deal, they made solely because they signed Grant Williams in the offseason to a $452 million deal that did not work out, and they had to correct that. And, you know, they get credit for realizing, oh, shoot, this is not working. Let's get out of it ASAP. Half a year into a four-year deal. At the same time, if you don't make that mistake, you're not trading a first-round pick plus more to get P.A. Washington and make that change. But hear me out on this as well, in terms of Grant Williams. So, there was, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of the issue with Grant Williams was a they, I think they thought Grant Williams was a bigger sort of 
team difference maker on defense when he's more of a guy that is a, a good cog in a good machine. He's someone that I think can, as as evidenced by him being on the Celtics and being on a good defense the last few years, he can be a part of that, right? But he's not a good defense right. unto himself, which I think Dallas right. thought he was more than he actually is. So there was there yeah. was the first bit of probably just um, not recognizing the player they were acquiring. But then also, the first month of the season, he shoots like 50% from three, right? And Dallas plays really well while he's playing well offensively. And then the shot f- falls off, and now I think he's at around 36 37% for the season. Well, the player you just traded for and is supposedly an upgrade on on the on Grant Williams is shooting like 32.5% from three. So um, I don't know exactly what they're expecting P.J. Washington to do for this team that's going to be so much better than what Grant Williams gave them because I think P.J. Washington is not as good of a shooter and I don't think he's as good of a defensive player either. Now, definitely not. The the one definitely. thing I think PJ Washington or the, the the couple of things that PJ Washington does better than Grant Williams is he's got more offensive versatility, right? He can He's bigger. He's he has length, right? Yeah, he's a little bit more he's a better uh, you know, vertical athlete. He's a uh, you know, a better ball handler uh and you know, can actually do a little bit post-up wise. But are those skills that valuable when you're playing next to Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving? Not posting up for sure. <laughs> um, I think the ability to be, you know, a, a ball handler, a third ball handler, I, I do think has value when one of Luka or Kyrie are sitting and the defense is focusing also attention on the other. You have someone who's capable, right? I think there's value in that. But you're right. The shot... You can't count. You can't rely on him as much as you can. I mean, I wouldn't say you can rely on Grant Williams either for shooting, but but the numbers bear out that Williams is a better shooter. Yeah. Um, like Grant Williams can give you a game like he had in Boston, that game seven against the Bucks where he hit like seven or eight threes or whatever it was. Yeah. That's in the range of outcomes. You're not going to expect that, obviously. Can Peter Washington do that? I'm not so sure. Yeah, and like you know, you can say. Oh yeah, he's been struggling to shoot for the last three or four months. But like that first month when he shot fifty percent, that still counts. <laughs> That's still part of this year's resume. Um, yeah. So yeah, I uh, and again, I don't I don't want to pretend as if I I've always been I think higher on Grant Williams than most. Probably it seems like uh, you know I've been higher on him than his own teams are. <laughs> Him because uh, they don't seem to to love him as much, and maybe he's got a grading personality. That's that's. I was going to say we might be missing out on that. That factor yeah. we don't know about. It could be a thing. Yeah, but um, you know, from what I've watched of just PJ Washington versus Grant Williams on the basketball court, I would argue if if PJ Washington is a superior basketball player, it's marginal. Yeah, I mean, I he's younger probably, right? I would guess. I PJ? Yeah. I don't know. Grant Williams is pretty young. Let me look it up real quick. PJ Washington is 25. He will turn yeah, he's 25. He turns 26 in the offseason. 
and Grant Williams is 25. 25 as well. Yeah, he uh, he's actually a little bit younger by a few months. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so that's that's my biggest thing is like now Dallas doesn't really have any resources moving forward to upgrade this roster, and this roster just isn't good enough. I think that's and, a big thing, right? Like they have drained their assets to the point where they can't make moves. I mean, in the offseason, they might get access to a first round pick that they can then trade if they want to, but I I don't know. They they are locked into what they have for the most part. And yeah, Zach Lowe talked about this on his recent pod where he was basically like, they've just been constantly playing catch up from the Brunson fumble, right? So yeah. you you lose Brunson, which was a huge mistake. Then you trade assets to get Kyrie Irving to fill the Brunson role. But then you also trade away Dinwiddie and Finney Smith in that deal, uh, as well as a first round pick. And then it's like, okay, now we need to fill, uh, you know, Finney Smith's role. And so now we're going to throw assets at Grant Williams and PJ Washington. And um, it's yep. this constant cycle of trying to catch up. And now you look at it and you go, okay, they're, you know, I think Jalen Brunson is better than Kyrie Irving, if especially if you factor in the leadership and all of that sort of the intangible stuff. Um, And this team is, Worse than the team that made the the uh, obviously that made the conference finals a few years ago, and now yeah they've got they've got nothing uh, to to trade moving forward, and it's another situation where when you look at the the pressure teams face like you talked about the pressure Milwaukee face trying to get Giannis to resign and so you are incentivized to make moves right, but I also feel like teams are a little too short-sighted in terms of thinking like, oh, Luca will be upset if we don't make the playoffs this year, right? Right. When in reality, it's like, well, what's better? Making the playoffs and getting killed in round one and having no assets moving forward or just missing the playoffs and being able to bring in a really good player in the offseason that gets uh, gets our star player excited. I would say the latter is the superior option. They got killed for it at the end of last season, but and I was one of the people who like was not a fan of it, but their choice at the end of last season to tank and fall into the lottery and miss the plan, it had its merits, and they did it for a reason, and they were probably right to. Um, and it's paid off for them. They got Derek Lively out, out of that out of that move. Yep. So yeah, I um We'll see. I mean, maybe P.J. Washington will be a great fit and he'll play even better defense than we've seen in his time in Charlotte. But uh, the argument for that is probably he's now in an environment where they have a better chance to win. He's not on one of the worst teams in the league. He will try harder, hopefully. Yeah. But like the other thing that I would also. I would also ask you is the idea of like, okay, so. What teams would you favor them against in a playoff series prior to the trade deadline and then after the trade deadline? Does that list of teams even change? That's a good question. When it comes to who they will likely face in the first round, should they make it one of those top four teams? It hasn't changed. I still wouldn't pick them over either any of those teams. Yeah. Um, you could argue maybe OKC just because they have been experienced and Luka is incredible in the clutch moments. But OKC is pretty deep um yeah i don't i think the lesson really is 
you can't lose an all-star caliber guard for nothing when you could have kept him and expect to be okay. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's move on to my uh, the, the next team, and that's the Brooklyn Nets. What did the Nets do? Nothing. <laughs> and it's so it's it's a similar uh, it's a similar thing to the Bulls, where I wonder, okay, what are the Nets doing? Where are they going? And similar to the whole Caruso thing, I heard a rumor about a potential trade the Nets could have made that they they chose not to make. And that was that the Houston Rockets supposedly offered the Nets all of their draft picks back from that James Harden move a few years ago for Mikhail Bridges, and they declined on that. Again, that's that's the rumor that I heard. Yeah, that was reported by ESPN, I believe. Um, so Brooklyn did make one move. They traded Spencer Dinwiddie for, to Toronto for Dennis Schroeder and Thad Young. A pretty, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty irrelevant move. Yeah. Um, the thing with Mikhail Bridges in, in Houston, this deal that you mentioned that was rumored uh, or reported, I think I can see why they said no. I'm not sure I would have agreed to it. Like, I, I'm not sure I would have agreed with them, and I probably would have done the deal. But they probably view it as, We've had the situation before, this front office who's currently in power with Sean Marks, of we started from a place where we didn't have picks and we were terrible, and we managed to build ourselves into a playoff team, into a good playoff team. And they're probably thinking we can do it again. We have a better place from which to start. We have Mikhail Bridges, who people want to play with. We have Cam Johnson, Nick Claxton, these good players. Um, I, and what they want to do, I think, is possible. It's just hard to do. Yeah, and that's my thing is that like, okay, yeah, you, what you said is accurate. Like those are those are some some good players, but like look at where Brooklyn is in the standings. This team is just not not good. And right, I agree with you. There's this expectation that oh, Mikhail Bridges is good enough that like, oh, if we get that star in here, that he can be our number two and we can really go places. And I even question that. You know, obviously Bridges has developed a ton on the offensive end of the floor, but I think it's been, uh, you know, he's sacrificed his defense to do that. He has not been a, you know, um, defensive player of the year or even all defensive level guy since he really ramped up that usage. And the Brooklyn defense has been, given that they've got some good defensive talent in there, they've been really disappointing on that end of the floor. Um, so yeah. I I just think it's, a, it's another situation similar to Chicago where the front office is too high on their own talent that they ha- have in their in their locker room. And therefore, they're making decisions as if, oh, we're one piece away. When they're they're simply not. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that they're at a point where they think that they have the assets to go get that one piece. In fact, they probably think they can get two pieces of that caliber with the assets they have. I don't agree with that, but I mean, I think that probably that, that if they're if they're making moves based on the idea that like, oh, 
the Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving thing could happen again. That was that felt like a once in a lifetime type of scenario. Well, like, yes, but they have draft picks. They don't have their own draft picks, but they have Phoenix picks. They have a Philadelphia pick or two, I believe. It's not like they have no assets. Um, now, if you're telling, if you're, if they had all their picks and were offered Mikhail Bridges for however many picks there are, three or four, whatever it is at this point, you're keeping the picks and not trading all that for Mikhail Bridges, I would think. So, won't, logically, it would make sense that they should make that move now. They're probably thinking with those picks they get back, they can't get a player better than Bridges. I think that's wrong. I don't think they're right about that. Yeah. Again, it's like this idea that, uh, you know, Mikhail Bridges is probably a borderline top 30 guy in the, in the NBA. Um, but he's not, he's not some game changer. And I think frankly, he's probably not quite at the level that you need for, from a number two either. I agree. He's a number three, in my opinion, for a contending team. Um, so yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't quite get that. And like, not only, you know, Houston throwing them that lifeline to get all of their own picks back. And then like, by trading your best player and getting those picks, you're making those picks better by that trade, by doing that trade. Yeah. My um, guess as to what they're thinking is they're probably thinking or hoping at least that at the end of this season, Donovan Mitchell asks out and he's from New York. So maybe they can trade for him. That's probably the hope. Is that something I would be wanting to count on? No. Yeah. And again, like, do I think a Donovan Mitchell, Mikel Bridges core with what else they have on that roster is good enough? Like, no, it's not. Um, no, probably not. All right. So next up, the Indiana Pacers. Pacers. Okay. Are you including the Siakam trade in this or no? So, no, I'm, well, I guess, like, from the perspective of, okay, are they trying to win now or are they not trying to win now? Uh, so, I guess you can include the Siakam thing in that. I thought the Siakam trade was a good move for them. I agree. Um, but what I'm mostly confused by is them offloading Buddy Heald for seconds. Well, so they replaced him with Doug McDermott. Who's not nearly as good as Buddy Heald. I agree. Now, I do wonder, there have been some things over the last year or two about Buddy Heald potentially being on the way out, given his contract status and, and who knows what behind the scenes. So maybe maybe there was more at play about them needing to move off of him because for whatever reason. Um, but you're right, on the court, that is a downgrade. Yeah, and then, like, you know, you're trading for Siakam, who's what, close to 30? Um, yeah. Miles Turner's uh, like smack dab in his prime, right? I know mm-hmm. like Tyrese Halliburton is young. I get that. But your second and third best player on this team are ready to win now. And Tyrese Halliburton is good enough to win now. Mm-hmm. So why are you for seconds, even, even if we, yes, even if I agree with you that this, their stance was healed is going to be gone. We're going to lose him for nothing. Is it worth losing your best shooting guard for this year's playoffs to get some seconds? It's tough. 
Honestly, I'm not sure. I think that there is value in in playing the long game and saying, okay, I don't want to lose a guy for nothing. Let's get something for him. At the same time, because, I mean, presumably because they believe they can re-sign Pascal Siakam and run it back with him next season. I don't know. I don't know. Let's say they plan to retain McDermott then next season, right? And have McDermott basically take the body healed role. I am less confident in a Tyrese Halliburton, Pascal Siakam, Miles Turner, Doug McDermott group than I am that group with Buddy Hield instead of McDermott. I think that I mean just because Buddy Hield's a better player, right? Yeah. Um, so even for next season, are they a better team? Probably not. Could they, in theory, parlay those picks into an upgrade elsewhere on the roster? Yeah, in theory, sure. But there's so much so much can happen between now and the end of the season and in the offseason that we don't know about. Uh, but that's not a bet that I would make. Yeah. And like part of the value of getting Siakam midseason, you would think would be for this year. And then yeah. you make a trade like this, which kind of says, oh, well, this year doesn't matter as much. It's like, well, this is the best Siakam will probably be in a Pacers uniform this season. It's probably, you know, he might be able to maintain similar level for a few years. Um, but, you know, Siakam is in his late 20s. He's peaking now. Um, so, yeah, I it's, uh, it's, it's a bit frustrating. Again, I come at this from the perspective of, like, I think the Pacers are, you know, one of the six best teams in the East. At, like if they would have kept healed, I even I favor them over Miami even. Um, and so I want those teams to go for it. I want those teams to try to do as much as they can to, to win around and to, you know, get that experience for a Tyrese Halliburton. Instead, they're kind of going the other way and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to, what, force Benedict Matherin to play more, even though a lot of his on-off <laughs> metrics and stuff shows that he, com- especially compared to Heald, hurts the team on the court. Yeah. I I guess the only explanation that could make it make sense is that there's a personality issue with him where he doesn't buy with the team or or he wants to be out of the, out of out of Indiana. I don't know what, what that looks like, obviously. Um but I kind of have to assume that there's something like that, given given there have been rumors like in the off season, there were there was a, he had asked out, he had permission to seek a trade, um, and nothing came to fruition at the time. But but there this has been a thing for a while now. It's not new. We're out of nowhere. Um, and I guess whatever there was in in that situation came to a head. All right, so uh, I think with this next team, I'm going to mention you're not going to be too happy with me. Okay. Portland. I agree. I'm not happy. I think this was a this was an opportunity at the very least to to trade Brogdon for something. Yeah. And then also I think, you know, Jeremy Grant is healthy and playing good basketball. This is probably the peak of his value as well. And you know, you look at a team like Dallas who Traded a first to get P.J. Washington. Jeremy Grant's a hell of a lot better than P.J. Washington. So Portland could have gotten a first. I mean, I know I understand, like, 
there there are obviously different uh you know salary matching stuff to to right come into play with Jeremy Grant compared to to PJ Washington but I think it's safe to say Portland could have gotten a first for Jeremy Grant right now if they wanted it. Yeah, I the question becomes then what's more valuable to this Portland team, Jeremy Grant or a pick in 3 years? And if they chose Jeremy Grant in that calculation, I think that's fair. I'm not going to argue against that too much. The issue for me is the Brogdon thing like you mentioned where this is a guy in his I think his early 30s, I want to say. Um who has had an injury history. He has like medical red flags. There was a trade. He was traded this offseason, and that trade got canceled because of a medical. Yep. Um, and he's been playing very well. Like His value is not going to get higher than what it is now. Um, but he still has one and a half years left on his contract, too. He's not going to be a free agent this year. Well, and here's uh, another thing to compare, trade. Like the, to compare the Grant and Brogdon thing and why, like, yeah, it even though I think they could get more for Grant than Brogdon, like it makes more sense with Brogdon to trade him because not only, as you said, there's more of the injury issues, but also he plays a position of all of their young talent. (laughs) It plays the same position. Like Grant as a fit on the court makes some sense. You can play Grant next to Shaden Sharp when he's healthy, Scoot Henderson when he's healthy, Anthony Simons, obviously. You can't do that with Brogdon. So the... It makes sense to want to get off of Brogdon. And I do think they tried. I do think that they had conversations. Um, I know that there was reports of Philadelphia making a call, at least. Um, I don't know what the offer was. And my guess is it was seconds. It was probably not a first-round pick for Brogdon, is my guess. Not a, not a 24. They, they probably wanted a pick not in 2024, a first-rounder in the future. The only first they were probably offered were probably this year's. And they given the picks they have right now, they probably don't value that. Um, so if the calculus was that they were only getting second round picks in the future as offers, and they chose that, chose to pass on that for Brogdon, I get it, but I would have made the deal. I would have just moved. Yeah, and it's like if it's if it's two crappy seconds, I understand holding on to him then, you know. Right. We don't know Uh, what the deals are, obviously. But, like, I would argue even if it's, like, if it's two good seconds, I would consider that. I would, too. Um, So, yeah. uh, We'll see. I mean, I don't think, hopefully, at least uh, in terms of Grant, you would hope that, uh, you know, he maintains this level of play. And if they want to, you know, if they're able to maybe fill his position a little bit here in the next year or two where, you know, trading him wouldn't mean that you just have an enormous gap on the wing. Right. Um, but, you know, there there is a risk to that. There is a risk to waiting and him getting hurt or him, you know, not being as good. Uh, but, yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, yeah, so let's see. I have uh, – that was it for the teams that I uh, was not too pleased with. So you ready to okay. move to the ones that I was, uh, was happy with? Let's do it. Let's get positive. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, I, I have one team that I'm kind of like just confused about. Okay, that Let's first. Yeah, sure. All right, the Toronto Raptors. Yeah, I'm confused. So the main move involves uh, they they ended up trading 
with the uh, the Utah Jazz, they made a move to acquire Kelly Olynyk and Ochai Agbaji, and they traded a first round pick to make that happen. Yeah. So I'm wondering with that deal is the majority of that value them thinking that Olinick is a good fit in terms of like playing alongside their young guys and allowing them to develop or is a large portion of their thoughts of like okay well, this is worth giving up a first that they just really are high on the youngster Agbaji If I had to guess, I'd say it's probably a bit of both. Yeah. I think that so they have a high second-round pick from the OG Ananobi trade. I believe it was the uh, Pistons pick, maybe, in the second round. Um, they've got, they had this late first that they traded to Utah. They had the Indiana first, and then they had potentially their own first if they keep it. They owe it to San Antonio, but it's top six protected. They probably thought that having three, maybe four picks in the top 32 of the draft is probably more than they need. Um, and that it's worth giving up one of them for a player that they like, in theory, in Akbaji, and a uh, and a chance to bring Olenek into their uh, system and their culture before he becomes a free agent to try and keep him. Yeah, that was what uh, Kevin Pelton mentioned that on the low post of say, calling it pre-agency, where yeah. you get his bird rights then, um, you know, ahead of time, and then you can, uh, you know, you can be over the cap and then still sign him. Yeah, and I think I would guess that both were motivations for them. Um, that, yes, they wanted to, you know, do that pre-agency thing with the Linux, and that they are high enough on Ekbaji that... I mean, you, you asked the question, right? Would you rather have a late first-round pick in this draft or Agbaji? And they came down on the Agbaji side. I don't think that's unfair. I think that makes. I think that's okay. Yeah, I think you made a good point that it's probably it probably is a little bit of both. Where you could say, well, maybe maybe Olenek is worth a good second, and Agbaji is worth a good second. So then, when yeah. you when you get both of them, that works out to a bad first. Um, yeah. Which is essentially what they gave up here. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't like I wasn't super high or super low on that move for Toronto. I just think it's kind of whatever. Um, it was more just like, yeah, a little bit surprising. And then the move where they they also traded Dennis Schroeder for Dinwiddie and then waived Dinwiddie, and it looks like Dinwiddie's going to sign with the Lakers. Yeah, I think that was so, solely a ca- a cash like bookkeeping move. I think. Yeah. But like, you know, because Schroeder had the extra year on his deal. Yeah. And the only the only downside of that is could they have traded Schroeder for positive value, you know, this offseason or next trade deadline um, would be the only reason you could probably look down on that. Because I think like their probably thought is, well, quickly's our point guard. Schroeder mm-hmm. came here to start. He's maybe not happy being the backup. Um, and we also have, we didn't trade Bruce Brown, so we have him, and he's, I think, a very capable backup point guard. I think that's actually a, um, arguably Bruce Brown's best role, where he can be can be really good defensively that position, and he does have some ball-handling chops, so. Yeah. Where do you land on them keeping Bruce Brown? Are you good with that or no? Um, 
I mean, yeah, it would just depend on what sort of offers they were getting for him. If, if they were getting, you know, a first round pick offered, then I probably would have considered it. But again, you also have to say like, you know, if it was a 2024 first, they already have a few of those. Then, you know, you, if, especially if it's going to be, you know, a late 2024 first, I don't know if that's worth it to them. But yeah, like if I was uh, if they were offered a 2025 or later first, I I would have seriously considered that. I agree with you. I saw a report from one of the beat writers there. I can't remember who, so my apologies for that. It was either Michael Grange or Eric Corrine, or I'm not sure to be honest. But they had reported that Toronto did get multiple offers, including a first round pick. Uh, but those reports didn't tell what year that pick was, how it was protected what the matching salary was, those kinds of details. So, I mean, and that matters, right? All those details matter to whether the deal makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I think them keeping him and holding on until this offseason or or next deadline if they keep him with his team option, I think that's okay. Yeah, especially with that, the fact that it's a team option, I think it makes it a little bit more palatable to to hold on to him. Um, yeah. it's Which is so funny because like when he initially signed that contract, I thought it was like one of those types of deals where it was guaranteed that the team would decline that option. But uh, it looks more and more like, uh, you know, that might actually be picked up. Yeah. I I mean, based on where their cap sheets are right now and what I think they want to do, if I were them, I'd pick it up. Yeah. All right. So now we can now we can finally get to the positives. Uh, Sorry. For those listening, that uh, it's been a downer so far. Uh, uh, first team up, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Nice. I figured they'd be here. Yeah. So we already like briefly talked about that uh, that move where Dallas ended up to to get the to get a first round pick. Essentially, made a deal with Oklahoma City where Oklahoma City sent them a 2024 first round pick. It's I think it's. One of those where Oklahoma City has four, and it's like the second least favorable or something like that of those yeah. four. Yeah. And then they got a 2028 swap with the Mavericks. So yes. Oklahoma City making a bet where we've got all of these first round picks. We can't possibly actually use all of these picks. So let's send one off, and we might lose it for nothing, but we could end up getting the fifth pick in 2028 or something like that. So they're, you know, they're they're adding to that, uh, you know, that, uh, that upside of their, of their draft capital, which again, at this stage, how good they are already. Those are the, the picks that they probably want that, you know, are either really great trade assets for us for a superstar trade or, you know, getting a cheap contributor that's really talented when, you know, you've got Shay and Chad and J-Dub all on big contracts. There's something smart they're doing in collecting all these draft assets from so many different teams. They have Clippers picks, they have Heat picks, they have Houston picks, they have more I'm sure I'm forgetting, um, and, and swaps as well. They're getting this incoming asset profile from so many teams that three, four, five years down the line, when hopefully they are still a good team, they're getting these assets from a bunch of different teams hoping that one of those teams is bad and because you don't need to be bad you just need one of those other teams to be bad and somebody has to be bad in the NBA Yeah, if you're getting picks from every team one of those picks is going to be good 
eventually. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like if if all of these have a 5% chance of being a great pick um, and you've got 20-plus picks, you're probably going to get one. Yeah. Like, they are playing the math game really well in that regard, I think, in a way that I think most people have not fully recognized yet. Yeah. And then beyond that, I was actually also really excited about their move where they acquired Gordon Hayward for the likes of, I believe it was uh, Davis Bertans and Trey Mann and maybe another uh, Misich, right? Yeah, Misich, yeah. Uh, so. And two seconds. Yeah. So. Which again, they can spend. They have that. Yeah, we we talked about all the first first they have. They also have just tons of seconds that they don't know what to yeah. do with. Um, but I love this move for them. A because I've always been uh, pretty low on Josh Giddy, and I don't think he's going to be able to play big minutes, especially in closing time come postseason. So to have another wing option who's also six eight that can, if Giddy is is really hurting you. You've got another guy in there that you can throw into that closing group that can shoot, pass, at least play okay defense, and you know make a play off the dribble as well. Uh, if Gordon Hayward is healthy, which is a big if at this point, um, right. he could. Ge- I still think he can genuinely help a playoff team, especially when yeah. you're not asking him to be your first, second, or third best guy. You're asking him to be maybe the fifth best guy on the floor, right? You're asking him to take a backseat from where he was earlier in his career. But if he's okay with that, like from a personality standpoint, if he's okay with that, then the fit makes perfect sense because Giddy, like you said, is is not that guy. And obviously there are off-court issues with him. There are allegations against him that are are not great. Um <laughs> and you know, if you know if I'm the team, like I'm moving away from him altogether, they haven't made that move yet, but um, Hayward kind of can step in and, and take that role without them missing a beat. I was laughing because, yeah, you saying the, the off-court issues are not great. That was about the nicest way you could put that, Sagar. You're such a friendly guy. Yeah, yeah to say <laughs> the least. I mean, yeah. People can look it up. It's, it's Google is great for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so... Let's uh, let's move on to the next team that I'm pretty positive about, and that's the New York Knicks. Yeah. So for years now, I think a lot of people have been waiting for them to make the big splash, right? The Donovan Mitchell type of move. Mm-hmm. And instead, I think they've just been cold and calculated and have made these moves around the margins um, that has really built a very formidable roster. You know, the uh um Zach Lowe was saying that like, yeah, they they traded Toppin for two seconds, which doesn't seem like much, but it also gave them the space to then sign Dante DiVincenzo to the mid-level. And now he's been so good, he's been better than Quentin Grimes, which made Quentin Grimes expendable. And they mm-hmm. use him as the main uh, value in the deal to get Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks. Yeah. And 
especially in a time where, yeah, Julius Randle is dealing with that shoulder dislocation. You've got OG Ananobi that uh, I just, I believe, just uh, had surgery, is about to have surgery for um, an issue with his elbow. Mm -hmm. And so those two guys are going to be out for a little bit. So now you bring in Boyan to fill some of that time. You also have Alec Burks that fills into that Quentin Grimes role. And I think another great thing about the fit with those guys is after they traded R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly for OG Ananobi, you know, they got better defensively with that move, but they right. did lose some shot creation and playmaking, right? Mm -hmm. But now Boyan Bogdanovich and Alec Burks, I think, bring, bring some of that back. So I think they've done just a phenomenal job, and they're still sitting there with yeah. – trove of first to use if they're going to make that splash and now they have an even better more formidable team that might make a run in this year's playoffs that would convince a superstar to want to be traded there yeah i think that's the big thing is they got better pretty clearly and they didn't give up much to do it they still have all their assets they're still flexible if they want to add a donovan mitchell or let's say Joel Embiid asks out eventually they they have the assets to make that move and the flexibility and, and salaries to make that move. Um while still being a great team right now. Like they've been on fire for the last, I don't know, month, something like that. Yeah. Um, I and mean, uh, the Knicks in Cleveland have been yeah. Have been yeah. dominant. So they were dominant the entire month of January and into February. And so you're talking about a team that can, you know, they can be in the, the two or the three seed in theory and get on the other side of the bracket from Boston, which is a big deal. And, like, if they were in round two facing Cleveland or Milwaukee or if somehow Indiana are up to get there, they have a good chance to win that series. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is a team that can make the conference finals um, in a way that, you know, I, I have been low on the Knicks for the last couple of years. I just, I don't buy into their reliance on Randall. I'm not a huge Randall guy. Um, I wasn't a big Barrett guy either. But they're just good. It doesn't make sense to me. They're just good. Well, I think the, the biggest part is that uh, Jalen Brunson has turned into yeah. arguably a top 20, 20 guy in the league. Yeah, he is. I liked Brunson a lot when he, like in that year when he hit for agency a couple years ago. Um, I didn't think he was worth the contract they gave him, and I was wrong. He has been awesome. Yeah, and, you know, Julius Randle, he's he's way overqualified, especially before Brunson got, got there. He was way overqualified as a number one. Mm -hmm. um, and he might not be, like, an ideal number two. You know, certain, certain teams like, you know, uh, the Lakers have Anthony Davis or LeBron as their number two. Yeah. He's not that, but, like, he's adequate as a number two. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you have three through nine are better than basically anyone else in the league, yeah, you're going to have a pretty pretty darn good basketball team. They have a lot of, like you just said, a lot of really good, high-quality players who are smart and play really hard, and that can get you a long way. Yep. And uh, the other, like, uh, cap nerdery uh, element is that they had Evan Fournier, who had a, I believe they had a team option 
yeah for him for next season and the thought was that they might pick that up even though he isn't playing he hasn't been in the rotation for the last couple of years just as a potential salary matching thing in a right star player acquisition now they've just transferred that over to Boyan Bogdanovich who has a I think a partial guarantee next year but uh I'm I'm guessing they will pick that up but not only yeah. can they use him in a potential trade but he can actually help you help your team in the meantime while also yeah. being that uh that player that you can use where you can say well this guy isn't a part of our core moving forward he's in his mid 30s right um so he can help us in the present he can provide value in the present and also serve that same function that Fournier did yeah it's it's making a move that helps them both now, that helps them now without hurting them in the future. And I think that that is, it's a hard thing to do, and they've, they've done that in a way that I didn't think they could. Yep. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been very impressive, and yeah, they're, they're genuinely a, a pretty darn good basketball team. Um, next up, uh, these, are, these, these last two um teams that i liked they're more smaller moves but uh i think they helped uh, i've got the minnesota timberwolves on here can i guess the other one yeah is it boston yes it is yeah uh i agree on both i like them both yeah so you know minnesota i think two of their biggest weaknesses going into the deadline backup point guard and also turnovers yeah Monte Morris, if he's healthy and, you know, he hasn't played a lot <laughs> this year. So there is some question marks whether he's still the same Monte Morris that we knew from his Denver days, right? Right. But if he is healthy, if he's that same level of player, um, he solves both of those issues pretty well for them, right? Um, mm -hmm. This team is huge. So the fact that Monte Morris is a small point guard, I don't think hurts as much because they can put size everywhere else on the court. Yeah. He can play off the ball. He's a he's a decent spot up shooter. He can he can run pick and roll, knock down some mid rangers, you know, do that sort of thing. And you know, yeah, he's not he's obviously not a strong defensive player, but he plays hard and he he can he can execute a scheme, right? Yeah. So he's high IQ. He's a smart player. Exactly. So like what you were saying earlier about Dallas and like having forty eight minutes of quality center play with the acquisition mm -hmm. of. Uh, Blanking on his name. Um, Gafford? Yeah, with the acquisition of Gafford. Uh, the, the Timberwolves now, I believe, have 48 minutes of quality point guard play with, with Connolly and yeah. Morris. I agree. And it's, it's kind of cool to see uh, how Monty Morris, when he was in Denver, he was one of those Tim Connolly guys when Tim Connolly was uh, the GM in Denver. Uh, and now Tim Connolly is you know, he's in Minnesota. He's getting his guy back. Um, and I, I think it makes sense. It's a good fit. I think that Morris is a high-caliber backup guard uh, on a good team, and he's going to fit this role for the Timberwolves really well. I don't think he's going to be asked to do too much. I, assuming they stay healthy, he's not gonna, they're not going to over-rely on him. Uh, and like you said, that 48 minutes of solid guard play where you can put him in there and, and trust that he's not going to kill you. Uh, is a big deal come playoff time. 
Yeah. And like, you know, at Conley's age, even even in at playoff time, you probably don't want him playing much more than like 32 minutes a game. For sure. For sure. So, uh, yeah, I think Monte Morris can step in there and play those that other 16 minutes and, and do that capably. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, and then, yeah, let's get to the other team, Boston. So the. Uh, they made a couple of moves. The the, yeah. the bigger one would be the uh, in my mind would be trading a couple of seconds and acquiring Xavier Tillman from the Memphis Grizzlies. I love this trade. You love it, okay? It's well, why, why don't you uh, why don't you go talk about it? What you love about it so much? I think that Boston's center rotation prior to this trade with Horford and Porzingis, they're both great players. They're also players who Horford's a bit older, and both have had some injury history in the past. Tillman is is pretty young, and he, to my knowledge, has not had that many injury concerns. So it's basically fortifying their front line and getting that third center who, if you need a big-body bruiser in the playoffs against a Joel Embiid or, or whoever they might come, come against, whether they make the finals possibly and see Jokic, getting a guy who can bang bodies with some other big centers and, and you can rely on them to give you solid minutes and, and not kill you on defense. Uh, I think is it's a valuable role to have and to fill it at the cost of two second round picks, I think is, is good business. Yep. I concur with all that. I think it's uh, yeah, as you said, that I think the biggest issue on their roster that I said, like when they ended up letting Grant Williams go was like, yeah, they just need another big body, another bruiser that they could throw out there. Like, you know, that just has six fouls and can be physical. And because again, yeah, you got to deal with Giannis and Embiid potentially and in, in just to get through the East. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a guy that I think is capable of, of, uh, you know, Unlike Gafford, who I said wasn't really suited to handle those types of matchups, I think Xavier Tillman is. Um, the big challenge imagine- with Tillman, though, and, and again, it also comes down to like, you know, the Celtics in the 22 NBA Finals really lost it because their offense failed them, right? And yeah. uh, Tillman is having a pretty terrible offensive year. <laughs> I was, uh, I, yeah. I, I sent out a tweet recently, and uh, his numbers are really bleak. I think uh, when I w- this this is uh, you know from a few days ago, I looked these up, but I believe it was twenty four percent from three, forty one percent from the free throw line. I think he was around fifty six percent at the rim. That's tough. Uh, yeah. How? <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> Yeah, he's he's not having a good offensive year. Now, you know, Memphis's offensive talent is nowhere near Boston's. There's also not nearly as good a floor spacing. So perhaps just being in that system will help that, those uh, those numbers for Tillman. But that is something to keep an eye out for. Like, you know, um, if he ends up having to take on a bigger role because Horford just can't stay on the floor in the come postseason or, um, you know, one of – Horford or Porzingis is hurt and he has to take on a bigger role like how much he hurts the Celtics offense is is something to keep an eye out for but I love it from a defensive perspective he is a very talented defensive center and you know he's young yeah I think the biggest thing for me is like 
assuming they stay healthy, which is obviously a big assumption. There's still a long time left to go before before where they want to be in June. Um, if if Porzingis and Horford stay healthy, at worst, this move isn't is a way to bolster their depth and allow them to, if needed, if a certain playoff series asks for, demands it, change the way they play because he's a different player. He can play differently. It's just a, a, a way to help them win in different ways. Yeah, um, I, think I, think like, I think the interesting thing too, though, is it's like, I feel like their big lineups only work if Porzingis is one of the two bigs. You know, if it's like, if yeah. it's Horford and Porzingis or Tillman and Porzingis, I think that works. If it's yeah. Horford and Tillman, I debate whether that's sustainable offensively. Yeah, but that idea you mentioned of Porzingis and Tillman, I like a lot because Porzingis can space the floor as a seven foot one guy or however tall he is. I don't even know. Having a guy that big can space the floor opens up a lot for a guy like Tillman who is not really an offensive threat and, like you said, is not shooting great even at the rim, but there's more space. Yeah. Yeah, so um, were there any uh, were there any particular teams or trades outside of what we've discussed that you found interesting, worth worth talking about here? We mentioned them briefly in talking about Chicago, but I was a little surprised you didn't mention Detroit as one of the teams you disliked. Okay. Uh, um, I, we, I think we talked about them in comparison to the Bulls, where the Bulls were incredibly inactive, um, and the Pistons were very much very active. Um, and there is value in being active and, and trying to get better. I think that they can be commended for that at least, but I don't think the moves they made were very good. And I, for being what they are, one of the worst teams in league history, I don't think that the moves they made move them in the direction of getting better. All of them, much at least. Interesting. So, yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm definitely not high on the Pistons. I'll just say that. I wasn't high on what they did. I just, I, I was, I, I kind of feel meh about it. Like I, what do you feel? What do you think about Grimes? Like, what's your thoughts on like if you had to place sort of draft pick value on Quentin Grimes at this stage? Is he worth a bad first? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think the concern for them is he like how big is he? He's like a six. He's a six five, six six guy kind of guy, right? Like I think six five. Yeah. So he's kind of you know like a a wing kind of player who they have to pay soon. And like, yeah, but I don't know if um, I don't know if if there's going to be like a bidding war for him, given that he can't dribble hardly at all. <laughs> but then, do you want to keep him? If he can't dribble, do you want him? Well, he can shoot and defend. Then he has value. You need to pay him. Then. <laughs> Either he's good and teams want him, or he's not good and teams don't want him. But he's restricted. He he will be a restricted free agent. Yes. And he's not, as you said, he's he's six five, so he doesn't have he's he's more a pure two, right? So that right. lowers his, uh, I think, the interest from other teams. And then also, yeah, teams if they um, if a guy's restricted, they might not be as excited just because you know 
the Pistons could match. So that also lowers offers a little bit. And then, yeah, his offensive limitations, I think, could... I, I would venture to guess they could probably get Quentin Grimes on a pretty good, like, better than um, market rate sort of a deal, given that he's going to be like, the agent. Over under the MLE. Hmm. So what does that add about now? Because D- DiVincenzo just, just did that. Is that four for 52? Is that what... That was what it was this year. So assume that next year is four for, call it, call it thirteen or fourteen a year on average. I don't know what if that's true or not, but assume something like that. I would say about that, or maybe a tad under that. So they still have a year to decide that he becomes extension eligible this year, and will be a free agent in twenty twenty five, I believe. Um. So they have time to get more information and, and data, right? But based on what we've seen thus far, that number feels rich to me. And yet it's probably going to be what the market demands. But again, he's also he's also 23, and you know there could still be some growth. Oh yeah, I'm not saying he can't be, become a better player. I hope that he can, because I think as a prospect, he is a guy worth taking a shot at. But... I would rather get him after one year on his rookie deal, not after three. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that could be a, a, a little difference in how we view their trade deadline is I might just be, it doesn't seem like by a lot, but I might be slightly higher on him and the prospect of, you know, yeah, if he signed something around the, the MLE, that that would be something I'd be fine with. Um, But uh, then there's the whole... um move where they traded a second for Simone Fontecchio. Right. And a good second, a high a, second this year. A very good second. Yes. Um, another situation where he's going to be a restricted free agent though. He, he is 28. So it is a little different than the, than Grimes. Yeah. Uh, and it's worth mentioning in that trade, they also gave up the rights to Gabriel Procida, who is a player playing in Europe. I know nothing about him. But people I know who have watched him extensively like him quite a bit as a prospect. He's 21. Um, he's supposed he's considered a, a well-regarded prospect. Yeah. Um, and so to give him a plus a good second for a 28-year-old pending RFA, I don't know. I don't love that. Yeah. It um I, I guess like I might also have been just uh I might be basing my feelings on the moves at this deadline to what they've done in the past. And so like my barometer for what is a good move for the Detroit Pistons has changed. Uh, That's fair. But like, at least again, at least they seem to understand now that like we need shooting and defense around Cade and Ivy. Right. Yeah. Um, And Duran. So like, to me, a lineup that features Ivy, Grimes, Cunningham, Fontecchio, and Duran actually makes some sense on both ends of the floor. And that's something that I don't think too many of their lineups and some of their, their roster decisions in, in previous years, they haven't been able to say that. Where does that leave the Thompson twin they have? I don't remember which one they have. I get the two mixed up. But where does that leave him? Yeah, I mean... 
I would, I would still, yeah, I, I said Fontecchio just thinking like if you're trying to win a game today, he would probably start, but like they're sure. still probably going to prioritize Thompson at the four, even though, yeah, it doesn't make as much sense just from a shooting perspective because then you're getting no shooting from the four or the five. Well, I wouldn't play him at the four. He's six six, But he's a great rebounder. Yeah. I mean, so if you run... Is there and a road where you play, run? And if you play him at the three, his lack of shooting hurts you even more. Can you play Ivy, Thompson, Cade, Fontecchio, Durin? Could you do that? Or no? I think you could. Um, yeah, you are. Again, like any lineup with, with Thompson in there um, with also a non-shooting center you're going to struggle with spacing to to a certain extent. Um, right. That's where, like, I, I guess like the idea of, um, you know, starting five again. If you were if you were the Pistons and you were trying to win a game, as you give yourself the best chance to win a game tomorrow, I'm saying that sure. you probably should start that lineup I mentioned with Fontecchio instead of instead of Thompson. Thompson. And then you can bring like Isaiah Stewart, who at least provides a little spacing at the five with Thompson at the four. And then you might be able to um, make it work, but it's, I guess so. I just, I just think like, you know, they, they acquired two guys that they can, I think keep on reasonable contracts moving forward that, can shoot and play defense. And I think that, again, compared to measuring it on a barometer of what they've done in the past, I think that's better than they've at least got a little bit more of an understanding of the philosophy of what wins basketball games. Yeah, that's fair. I can agree with that. Well, yeah, was there uh, was there any other uh, teams or, or particular moves? Um. We talked about the Bulls with regards to their inaction. I kind of felt similarly about Sacramento. Not to the same extent, obviously. The Kings have been active. They've been trying to make moves. They didn't make any sort of move at this deadline, while their competitors in the West ostensibly did, uh, namely Dallas. uh, And and Oklahoma City, although Oklahoma's higher in the standings. which just me leaves me if I'm if I'm a Kings fan, I'm a little concerned that they might get lapped by the rest of the conference at some point. Um, yeah, the I feel like the challenge though with Sacramento, I guess they do have a decent amount of their picks, don't they? They're only out. They're only out one. Yeah, this year. So they could throw a you know asset heavy like in in the picks department, but what's the matching salary then? I guess you've got Harrison Barnes there. You've got Kevin Herter. Uh, yeah, I think Herter was in the rumor mill quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but again, like they're especially after I think the you know you've you've had the previous trades of like Harden and Siakam. Um, what what star player was even available for them to you know swing for the fences on? There probably wasn't one. Yeah. But I don't know. I just I want to see something. Yeah, even a small move to try and get better on the fringes would have been nice. A backup center like Tillman, for example, not that he's a great fit, but 
but I think he's a better player just in a vacuum than JaVale McGee or Alex Len. Um, I would, would like to see some action there. Um, and, you know, they can still make the playoffs and be a competitive team, but I don't feel as good about them long-term as I did coming into the season. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I will say, though, that, like, you know, um, like, yeah, like, if, if you have to, if you, if you can get a legitimate upgrade to your rotation for a couple seconds or whatever, yeah, they, they probably should have done that. But right. do I think they're at a stage where they're good enough where it's worth, you know, yeah, throwing, like, theoretically, like, a couple of firsts for a DeJounte Murray-level player? I don't, I don't think that does enough in the present to make that worthwhile. Uh, I feel I like, agree. I feel like they need, they need somebody that you could argue is better than Fox or Sabonis to, to really swing for the fences on. Yeah. And, and that kind of player, even the Jonathan Murray level player wasn't available at this deadline. I don't think um, that we know of at least. Um, so I understand them wanting to keep their powder dry, you know, keep the assets for maybe in the summer, somebody does become available. Um, I just I wonder like, let's say there aren't going to be a home court team more than likely based on the standings right now. Assuming they get into the playoff as a five through eight team, can they beat one of OKC, Minnesota, Denver, or the Clippers in a series? Do you think? Can they win a round? No, <laughs> I don't think so either. Yeah, and and I don't want to. I want to believe in them. I want them to be good. I want to see them win a series. That'd be great, but. But I don't. I didn't think they were at that point, entering deadline week. I don't think they're at that point, exiting deadline week. Was there a move that could have gotten them to that point of you know winning a series? I don't know, but I wanted to see something. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally fair. And yeah, I, I just uh, as as good as Sabonis is, I think having him at center. And devoting that much of your salary cap to that to that level of player, I think, is just puts a ceiling on what uh, level of team they can become. I think they're they're obviously at a better stage than they've been in a long time in terms yeah. of their yeah. they're they're good and they're, they're really probably fun. a playoff team. They're, they're really a fun, fun team to watch. Yeah. So I mean, I think I'll, if you talk to most uh, Sacramento fans, I think they're they're ecstatic and thrilled at at the at this current team <laughs> given what they've had to endure for so long i agree i just i think that there is a hunger among their fans and i think there should be among their team the front office to not just be a, a consistent first round exit but to want more than that right and and they're young enough like they're not an old team they're a pretty young team so that's not unrealistic to ask for or hope for uh, but as of right now i wouldn't pick them to win a series I want to, but I don't think they're there yet. Yep. Well, this was uh this is a fun, really fun discussion. Um yeah. should we should we discuss the Super Bowl that just happened? One of the uh it was a it was a bit of an ugly ugly game, especially in the first half, but it ended up being a, an absolute classic. Yeah, it went from disgusting filth of football to a barn burner. <laughs> Um, it was a great time. I had a great time with it. So I have, I saw, I saw a tweet you had about the game and, um, 
uh, I wanted to to break this down with you because I think it's an interesting uh, interesting subject. But the uh, for those that uh, for those that didn't watch the game, the uh, the game went to overtime, and the uh, the the overtime rules during the playoffs. It's the whole playoffs, right? It's not just the Super yeah. Bowl is different yeah. than what it is during the regular season. Mm-hmm. Where in the regular season, if you if you ask for if you win the coin toss to start overtime and ask for the ball and you go down and score a touchdown, you win the game. That ends the game, right? But right. in the playoffs, that's not the case. Correct. So no matter what, even if you score a touchdown, the other team gets the ball back. Yeah. So then and it should be noted, this was the first overtime game in the playoffs with that rule change. Yeah. This is the first one. So the uh, San Francisco 49ers, the game was tied at 19 heading into overtime. They end up winning the toss and electing to accept and, and receive the ball to get the ball first. Yeah. Your stance is that that was a mistake, and I'm I, I love. W- would you mind just telling the people why you think that's a mistake, and then I I've got my rebuttal to it. Okay, so my thought process is much like the thought process in college football over time, where if you go first, you are at a disadvantage because the team going second knows what they need to get the win. They know that if you score a touchdown, if the, if the team that goes first scores a touchdown, that they need to match that, and they can then go for it on fourth down and not sell for a field goal, or or whatever it may be. They have the advantage of knowing what they need. Or if it's and third that, and five, and you know you're going to go for it on fourth, you could run it on third and five. You know, you it does right, exactly. change your decision making process. I yeah, I, I get that. Right. That knowledge I think is really valuable, and. My guess is the Niners chose to receive the ball because they figured if both teams score, they get the ball next and they can end the game. The next score wins. That's what I'm guessing they thought. My issue with that is that in this game, the the way the game was going, the flow of the game, would not suggest that both teams are going to score on their first drives in overtime. That's not how the game had been going at all. So to assume that that would happen and that you need the ball after that, I think was getting ahead of their skis a little bit. And I think that having the information difference, having the information would have made a difference because instead of settling for a field goal on their first drive, maybe they go for it and win. Yeah. So in this particular game, yeah, San Francisco gets the ball. They go all the way down the length of the field and they get stopped at the, what is it around the four or five yard line and then are forced to kick a field goal. Yeah. And then the Chiefs get it, and they're actually at one point on the ensuing drive down three, knowing they need to at least get three, uh, have a fourth and one on their own side of the field. Yeah. And, again, as you stated, because they know they have the information, they know what they have to do, they go for it, they get it, and then they proceed to go all the way down the length of the field and score the the game-winning touchdown. Right. Um. And you you brought up my my rebuttal. You brought up my argument in saying like this is what the 49ers were thinking. But like, yeah, that is that is my thought because I would argue if you had to say, okay, 
what's more likely to happen that both teams have the same result on their first offensive possession or they have a different result? I would argue the first one is more common. So like what what I'm saying, for example, if both teams punt on the first possession or both teams get a field goal on their first offensive possession of overtime or both teams get a touchdown on their first offensive possession of overtime. If you said like how many times, if you just took two possessions from a football game and said, how often does that happen? It's over 50% of the time. Sure. But that's with these teams not thinking about what it'll take to win. In overtime, if you can't say if both teams sell for a field goal because after the first team does so, the second team is incentivized not to do that. They're incentivized to go for it on fourth down and not kick a field goal. Well, I don't you know I don't I mean? think that's true. They're incentivized to go for it on fourth down to prevent punting. <laughs> Because they're, they're no, not going to punt. To win a game. I'm thinking overtime, after the first team kicks a field goal, the second team is incentivized to not kick a field goal because they need to win. They don't want to tie the game. But tying the game is is a better alternative than losing the game. Sure, but you're still not winning. <laughs> you You play to win. You don't play to not lose. Right, but you could you could argue the same thing in terms of like, you know the 49ers and we can get into like the, the coaching decisions and stuff if you want. But when the 49ers had the ball, I think it was third and goal at around the four yard line on their in overtime putting drive in overtime. Yeah. They, um, I think they, they brought McCaffrey in motion, but they also like, they had an empty backfield. So it didn't seem like there was any chance they were going to run it on third and four. Yeah. And, that's another situation where I'm like, you should be more aggressive here, aggressive in terms of like suggesting that we might go for it on fourth. And in that right. case, we're fine with a two yard run and and getting to the to the two and going for it from there. I agree. Um, so like when San Francisco takes the ball, um, they're also incentivized to score a touchdown, that gives them a better chance to win than kicking a field goal. But ultimately, they ended up, yeah, getting stopped. I think on third down, they might have even lost a yard, and it was they ended up being on, like, the six-yard line. So then it seemed like, yeah, we we basically have to take the field goal now. But Uh, if they knew that Kansas City on their first drive of overtime score a touchdown, they wouldn't settle for a field goal. They, They would have gone for it. Correct. So in that uh, regard, the information that they did not have ended up changing the decision-making process and ultimately costing them the game. But I think that the challenge I'm having with your logic here is the idea that, um, you know, it comes down to the execution as well in terms of, okay, the Kansas City Chiefs, yeah, of course, when the other team scores a touchdown, or I mean, scores a field goal and a touchdown wins the game, you'd like to get a touchdown. It doesn't right. mean that the 49ers couldn't have still gotten a stop and forced a field goal. For sure. And they nearly did. There were times where I don't, I might be mistaken. I might be thinking of a different drive, but there was a time 
late in the game where I think the uh, the Chiefs had a third and long and, and they ended up completing it. Um, and even though like there was a chance that that the Niners stopped them, there was like, the chance was there. Yeah. So uh, then my but like my my thought then and and let me let me uh, state that I agree with you that having that informational advantage is an advantage. Yeah. I just don't necessarily agree that it's a bigger advantage than having the third possession where that possession equals if you score, you win. Let's say they had gone second. They chose to let Kansas City go first. And KC had scored a touchdown, made the point after, and scored seven. If the Niners then got the ball back and scored a touchdown, would you have gone for two to win the game or one to tie it and give Casey the ball back? Well, I know what Dan Campbell would do. Yes. I know what he would do. I know what I would do. I wonder what you would do. <sighs> yeah, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting call. And yeah, and, and this is just another way of you suggesting that like you control your destiny more as that uh has that team going second. Right, because either they go for two and get it and win, don't get it and lose, or they go just kick a point after, make it, and then get the ball back to Mahomes needing a field goal. Which, like, I don't want to be against Mahomes needing a field goal. It's true. So I I, I, I do think, um, yeah, given the odds that, like, yes, you've probably got what? Like, teams convert about 50% of two-point attempts or around there? I think it's a little higher than that. Okay. Um, I think it was a 70, I think. Well, but also I think a lot of times the teams attempted is when there's like a penalty and they get the ball at the one. So I'm talking about that is true. the two-point conversions true. where you're on the two. What yeah, the, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm guessing it's like around 50 or maybe slightly above 50. But Sure. Um, the... Uh, Yeah, given that, like, yeah, it's about a 50-50 bet that you're going to make it. But then, yeah, the chances that you, um, if you kick the field goal, the odds that the other team then goes down and scores, your likelihood of winning is a lot a lot lower. It's less than 50% yeah. at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would go for it in that scenario. But then, like, you know, you're talking about a scenario where um, – if you go first and you get a touchdown, um, the other team a has to score a touchdown to to even give get a chance to beat you, and then also has to convert that two point conversion. So it's not like right. you know, in that scenario you're describing that the team that got the ball first is in some horrible position. Uh, no, but against against Mahomes, I don't want to be in that position to be honest. <laughs> like, I that, that that guy is too good. So. Like, yeah. I don't desire being in the position they were in. Yeah, but like again, given like okay, let's um, let's say yeah, Mahomes is the super clutch guy. He's obviously performed well in in those sorts of situations. You give him the ball first, the likelihood they are probably scoring a touchdown, right? And then maybe, or they could they could not not knowing they need a touchdown, they might settle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll never know, right? We don't live in that reality, but 
But there's a chance they could have settled. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the the um I'm starting to see your side of things a little bit more given that two point conversion idea. Um and yeah, we we just given that the you you mentioned that this is the first game under the that rule, we haven't yeah. seen all of these different scenarios play out yet. Right. There's no data on what generally tends to work better or why. We don't know this. So like I don't I don't think it's some egregious mistake. I think that there are other reasons that the Niners lost this game. That's not like the biggest reason. But I do think that they could have probably improved their odds by by deferring. Yeah, and um I think Shanahan's getting a lot of flack. I I don't think it's really deserved because I think a lot of it just comes down to the 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 lack of execution from his own team. You know, you talk about the McCaffrey fumble, you talk about the um that punt where the the punt returner the didn't punt. catch the ball and let the ball bounce and it bounces off the guy the back of the heel I think of one of his teammates and then mm-hmm. Kansas City gets it and that to me was the play of the game because yeah Kansas City's offense just had done nothing up to that point and they scored on the very next play yeah um but uh yeah it's it was uh, it it was a it was a is a situation where I feel like San Francisco um I was joking like during the game thinking like, oh yeah, um, San Francisco might win the Super Bowl without playing a single good game in the postseason. <laughs> yeah. I, and, you know, coming into this game, I, I was picking the Chiefs in part because I was rooting for them and in part because I thought they were the better team or more disciplined team at least. And and part of that was in the playoffs, the Chiefs were playing their best football and I were playing their worst. Yeah. Um, and And that kind of held true. I mean, I guess... Both teams played good games today for the most part. Like I don't think the Niners played poorly. Um, but against a team as good as Kansas City is, a few mistakes is enough to kill you. Well, and, and not the you know, San Francisco, the couple of things I mentioned, also the extra point that was missed by the kicker. Yeah. That that changes a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm even I'm even curious uh like what your thoughts are because that if if that extra point goes in, that puts him up 17-13. Yes. Then Kansas City comes down the length of the field, ends up stalling out around, like, I think, again, like the six-yard line or something around there. Yeah, the short kick they ended up taking. And, uh, yeah, they ended up kicking it to tie it at 16. But if it was 17-13, do they even kick it there? I would guess probably not. Yeah. But, I mean, you never know, obviously. But that's kind of like these fine margins of one blocked kick here or something like that changes the entire game. Yeah. Um, and I argue, like, at the end of the first half, the the Niners had a chance to, you know, get the ball back with a minute left and two or three timeouts. And they chose to not use those timeouts and let the clock burn and ultimately got the ball back and kneeled it to go to halftime. That one, that one possession, one minute, could have changed the game for them in regulation. Like you can't waste a minute. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, what a crazy game. I am. Um, you got to give a lot of credit to Kansas City's defense. I think they were phenomenal. Yeah, they were really good. Um. 
And yeah, I thought for for big chunks of the game, especially the first half, the 49ers defense was was uh, was pretty great as well. Yeah, despite losing one of their best players on an awful fluke injury, not even in the run of play. Yeah, he like I I could tell you're talking about the uh, Greenlaw, the linebacker for yeah. the 49ers. Uh, I yeah. could tell even early in the game at one point he had a tackle and then he like slammed his arms down. I was like, did he just hit the guy he tackled with his arms? Like he was amped. Yeah. And so he almost got into like a like Usain Bolt like runner's pose on the sideline and went to like sprint and yeah, hopefully didn't tear his Achilles, but they said it he was did. Achilles. Oh, they already confirmed that. Well, it's been reported by NFL Network, ESPN, that kind of thing. So uh, that is that is a huge bummer. That is awful. Yeah, um, he was on the sideline, running onto the getting ready to run onto the field to go back into the game, and it happened. And that's it's awful luck. It's, yeah, it's very I bad. I suspected luck. it was something to do with the Achilles, but yeah, you you hope it's not the worst case scenario. But uh, yeah. Uh, on the video, it's it's kind of weird. On the video, I didn't notice anything. I just thought, okay, he got hurt. Maybe he had pulled a hamstring or something like that. I don't know. And then they say lower leg injury. So I'm wondering, did he like roll his ankle or something? Like I had no idea. And then they met one of the reporters said Achilles injury. And that's when I'm like, oh shoot, that's that's really bad. Yeah. Well, the 49ers had a bunch of injuries in this game. I believe their right guard went out at one point, one of their safety. Yep. Hurt his shoulder on a tackle of Travis Kelsey late in the game. Yeah, Debo uh, Samuel was playing injured with a hamstring injury. George Kittle left the game, and that's not enough to say. Like the Chiefs had their injuries too. Like not to forget that. Like they came in without one of the starting offensive linemen and, and more, I'm sure. But the Niners got hit bad in this game particularly. So, uh, do you think the Chiefs can pull off the three peat next season? Yeah, I think they can. Yeah? I think that they will theoretically add to the receiver room, I would imagine. Um, and, you know, giving Mahomes another weapon that he can rely on and not drop the ball, um, I think is is a scary thought. And the defense is good and young, too. Like, they're not... I can't imagine they regress significantly on that end. Um, so assuming they stay healthy... They are a scary team. Yeah, Chris Jones would be the only one. How old is Chris Jones? Is he is in his either late twenties or maybe thirty? He's twenty nine, so he would be the only. I feel like the main regression candidate, but he's been phenomenal for them the last couple right. of years. But but he's a free agent. He might not even be there next year. Oh yeah, because he. After- I guess he he did he held out at the beginning of the year, but I guess it was just he ended up getting a one year deal. Out of that, he ended up getting like additional bonuses and then like that. They added incentives to his contract, um, including winning the rule, which he gets an extra payday because of that. Um, but my guess is they're not gonna franchise tag him because that would make things worse. Um, so you got to keep him. Their cornerback, Legarius Sneed, is going to be a free agent. They need to keep him. I imagine they will. He's very good. Um, yeah, losing Jones would be really tough because yeah, as good as those, as good as their secondary is, like and Romo even mentioned it uh, during the broadcast that there were a couple of times where Purdy had 
deep shots that would have been touchdowns, but Chris Jones beating his man, getting that Changes pressure, um, forced some incompletions. And, um, you know, you lose that, and, yeah, you you probably lose this game. Yeah, it's he's an incredible player to have to try and replace if they choose to let him go. Um, but, you know, they if they let him go, They'll get better on offense, so like they're they're an incredible team. It's it's crazy. Well, I can't bet against them. And San Francisco will mostly uh, be intact for next year as well. I I think like I I, I think I saw that they already had the Vegas lines for uh, for next season are up, and they're the favorites to to win it. 49ers. to win the whole thing or to win the conference. To win the whole thing for the uh, so the twenty twenty five Super Bowl, huh? Even over Kansas City uh, by a small margin, but yeah, Kansas City was two. I wouldn't go that far. I, I would have Kansas City number one. I mean, I don't know how you can't. Interesting. Yeah, I, they'll be a good team still. Like they're well coached. They have a good enough quarterback. They have some incredible players on the roster. A lot of stars. I do wonder if we see some changes. I'm curious. All right, so let's talk a little uh, a little Oscars. I know uh, both uh, Sagar and I are big into movies, and we enjoy, not sure why, but we do enjoy the uh, award ceremonies and all of that and keeping track of that, and even though most of the time they're incredibly boring. But, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we watch them anyway. Uh, so... Let's get into the best pictures, Sagar. I'm curious to get your yeah. thoughts on. I think you've seen most of these, but I'll list them for those listening. The the movies that were selected for best picture. We've got American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives. Poor things and the zone of interest. So I guess Sagar, first off, uh, which ones of those have you uh, have you seen? And then what were what were some of your thoughts on like if you thought any any particular movies were snubbed or if you thought any that uh, got selected shouldn't be there? So of this field of ten, I've seen eight of the movies. The only two that I have yet to see are Maestro. And the zone of interest. Okay, so yeah, I've seen. I personally have seen nine of the ten, with the only exception being the zone of interest. Okay, so you've seen Maestro then. Yep. Okay. Um, of those, of the ones I've seen, I think all of them are worthy of being, of getting the acclaim of being a, a best picture nominee. The one that I'm sad to see not on this list is Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. I thought it had a chance to do something and be one of those those transcendent movies that gets that kind of acclaim from the Academy despite being animated. Because uh, I thought it's that good of a movie. Uh, but they did not agree with me. Yeah, I'm in agreement there. I think the uh, Across the Spider-Verse, it's one of my, it's going to be one of my top five movies of the year of 2023. I think we're animated or or not it's just a, a fantastic film and yeah i i agree 
I don't. I didn't even really consider it as a snub, though, because I just knew the <laughs> the uh, Academy would not pick that movie. Um, they yeah, have, they have a seemingly they have a uh, a distaste for animated movies, maybe because it has its own separate category. There's almost like you know, it's not. And, and oftentimes, I think this was the case with best foreign film, now called best international feature. That I think for a long time. If you were in that category, you weren't really, um, you know, considered in the best picture category. Right. Um, whereas now they have started to some of the some of the best international features are also best picture nominees. But, yeah, I feel like with animated movies, um, there is almost that like old guy. Oh, animated movies aren't real movies. They're, you know, they're for kids sort of. thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's an unfair connotation for those movies to have because a movie like the Spider-Verse movie that came out this year is, yes, it's kids can watch it and it's suitable for kids. It's also very much grappling with themes that are um, that can that can be enjoyed by people who are by adults. Like it's not solely a kids movie. Um, And if we're talking about movies that are the most well-made best made movies of the year it's hard to see what that film has done in its medium and not think that it is one of the 10 best of the year it's it's hard for me to find a list without that movie that's top 10 credible yeah and i honestly i um i think there's an argument to be made that now there are some animated movies that are like literally that can only be enjoyed by children that they're just not right. there's nothing that adults can take away from it and in that case right. like those movies probably don't deserve to be nominated in a best animated or a best um best picture category but I could make an argument a movie like Across the Spider-Verse that can appeal to people like us and we both think it's one of the best movies of the year and yeah. it appeals to children that means that it's got an even broader appeal than a lot of movies that aren't animated right like you talk about a movie like anatomy of the fall that's very much not a kid's movie like we're talking about movies that are very mature um and and nothing wrong with that obviously like those are good movies but we're talking about movies that have the appeal have mass appeal as well as have the the high level craft um Spider-Verse fits all of those bills. Yeah. Um, completely agreed there. Uh, the couple of movies that uh, I have pretty high, and this is going to be a spoiler for, a little bit of a spoiler for my upcoming movie list that I'm I'm working on. I should have that out soon. I know I've been saying that for a little while on various podcasts, but uh, it should be out soon. Um, but a couple of movies that, I think are worthy of of this level of acclaim. The Iron Claw, The Killer, and uh, also um, May December. Okay, I would I would say all three of those are in my mind best picture caliber. Uh, the the one the one movie that I would say and and sorry you haven't seen this saga but the the one the one best picture that I've seen that you haven't Maestro is the one that I would say does not belong here. Okay. Um, 
and you know, I won't get into it too much just because again, you, uh, you haven't seen it yet and I, I won't do anything spoiler wise, but it very much feels like a movie that was made with like awards shows in mind. Yeah. If that makes sense, like we're going to this scene is like my, you know how they do the six second clips of the, the actor in the actors yeah. categories or whatever, like, oh, this scene is specifically made for that. Um, and yeah, like the movie to me didn't have a lot of heart and it also felt like it um, was also trying to do too much to the point that it stretched itself thin. It's like, oh, we're trying to tell eight different stories. And instead of telling three or four things in a really deep and interesting way, we're telling eight things in a way that it all feels shallow. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh -huh. I think you mentioned this idea of like movies or scenes that are made with the authors in mind and have in mind the idea of, oh, this will be like their clip in the montage before the award ceremony thing, uh, the selection, right? And as someone who is very much pro clips at the award shows, like show the clips, um, it's, it's, it's easy to tell when when a performance has that moment, like, oh, this is going to be their clip on the, on the Oscar show kind of thing. Um, so I guess for that reason, I'm maybe not looking forward to that movie as much, but but I am curious because it's been such a topic of hot debate among people online of whether that movie is even good or not. I'm quite curious to uh, to see it myself. Yeah, I'm kind of on the... I feel like with, with a lot of movies where some people hate it, some people love it, I uh, you know, those really um, divisive films, I usually find myself kind of in the middle. I'm like, yeah, it was average. Like... I can see that the, there are certain moments that I think I get why people are really into that. But then like when I'm looking at the movie as a whole, it just doesn't, it didn't make that big of an impact on me. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. What, uh, what category should we talk about next? Was there any, was there any particular like acting category or some of the director stuff? What, uh, when, when you saw these, uh, uh, this list, which it came out, what, just like a couple of weeks ago? Um, yeah, on the 24th of January. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what things, uh, what stood out in terms of maybe someone that was in a category that was maybe a pleasant surprise or uh, some someone or something that wasn't in one that you felt like, damn, that's that's quite the snub. I think it's worth talking about how strong this year's best actress category is. Okay. Um, it's a historically strong category this year, you know. We're talking about best actress in a leading role. Yes, yes, yes. Not supporting. My apologies. Yeah. Um, the nominees. Just should I go ahead and read them? Yeah. Um, so it's Annette Benning for Nyad, Lily Gladstone for Code of the Flower Moon, Sandra Huller for An Annual Fall, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, and Emma Stone for Poor Things. Um, just. For full clarity, I've only seen three of those nominees thus far. I've seen Gladstone, Huller, and Stone. Uh, and I've seen, seen. I've seen four of the five, so I've also seen, you know, because I mentioned Mulligan. I've already seen Maestro, so I've seen Carrie Mulligan. So neither of us have seen Annette Benning in Nyad. Um, um, 
I know you are also a fellow fan of the Big Picture podcast with Sean Fennessy. And yeah. uh, I was listening to a uh, a recent pod where they were talking about it. And uh, he he said, like, you know, Annette Bening's a great actress. Um, you know, she does a lot of swimming in this movie. There's a lot of swimming <laughs> going on. So it's like, it's very physically impressive. But uh, he seemed to suggest that, like, yeah, not sure exactly outside of it being sort of like the Glenn Close nomination where it's sort of a Lifetime Achievement Award type of thing. Not sure why she's necessarily in here, even though, again, I can't speak to it myself. Yeah, my thing is, like, there's been a lot said about Margot Robbie not being in this movie for her performance, not being in this category for her performance of uh, in Barbie. Um, and I do think that, I mean, I, I can't say that Benning should not be in this category or Mulligan for that matter. I haven't seen their movies. Um, but the fact that they're in this category and Robbie is a six, yeah, Robbie's a six that is not in. And then I also felt like Greta Lee for Past Lives should have also been in this category. That's seven people for five spots. Um, and that is, uh, it's, that's an incredible, incredible depth for a category. Yeah, and then, you know, another movie I, I, I've already brought up, the idea of May-December being a film that I think was uh, deserving of getting a Best Picture nod. I think um, Natalie Portman in that movie also deserves some some recognition as well. She's uh, arguably it's her best performance and she's had some whoppers of performances in her career. Yeah, I can't speak to that. I haven't seen that movie. Um, I love Natalie Portman. She's wonderful. Um, yeah, it would have been cool to see her here as well. That entire movie, given the prognostication that it would be a big awards contender, that movie being shut out entirely at the Oscars uh, was a bit surprising. Again, maybe another slap in the face to the whole Netflix release. Yeah, but they they nominated Maestro quite a bit of times, and Nyad got two nominations. So yeah, those are both now. Rustin as well. Coleman Domingo got an, an acting nomination. Uh, so it's not like Netflix isn't here entirely. They're well represented as well. Yeah, it's uh, so um, out of the people that did get selected here. I think I know your answer, but uh, why don't you tell the people who you would uh, who you would pick out of this group? Again, the, again, the um, actresses in a leading role: Annette Bening for Nyad, Lily Gladstone, Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Hulaire. Is that? I'm not sure to be honest. Uh, for Anatomy of a Fall, um, Carrie Mulligan for Maestro, and Emma Stone for Poor Thing. So, uh, what's uh, what's Sager's selection here? If I were the one getting out the awards, it would be Gladstone. Yeah, which obviously that's what it should be. It should be you giving out these awards. Yes, ideally. <laughs> um, that'd be great. Um, I do think that Emma Stone and Sandra Huller in their movies are both phenomenal. They're both very good. That's why I think that this category is so stacked is because there are three performances that I've seen that in most years could be winners. Um, but the fact that they're all in this category together um, means only one can win, and for me, it's Gladstone. And what's uh, and I think I'm in agreement. I do. Um, I want to watch. I want to rewatch uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I have. I've only seen it the once in theaters. It's just a. 
it's a daunting film to rewatch given the the length, the runtime. Yeah, but, and the material, right? It's it's pretty heavy. Yes, but uh, I think what's great about Gladstone's performance is it's the opposite of what we were talking about earlier of the whole, you know, oh, this six second clip will um, be the clip that that's run for this. Like you could pick any number of scenes. It's a very subtle sort of understated um, performance where it's really a case of showing a person going from being healthy to being sick over the course of a film and, um, you know, her coming to grips with falling in love with someone and then learning that maybe that wasn't someone that I should have trusted. And so there's, there's a lot of emotionally complex things going on but it's all a very subtle you know just small facial expressions yeah you know those sorts of things there's never that like you know scene where she's shouting at the camera or at least not not that i could think of i don't remember one either i think the word you use subtle is the word that i use as well it's it's a very, very subtle uh understated nuanced performance where there is no loud moment it's all quiet and like, I don't mean to spoil the movie, but like, there's a significant portion of this movie where she's bedridden. Her character is ill um, for a big chunk of the movie. And to be able to, A, pull anything off while her character's in that state, and to B, give the performance she does despite her character being bedridden for as long as she is, is incredibly difficult. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, like, with, with Emma Stone's performance, with Sandra Ho's performance, there are none of those moments where you think, oh, this is made for awards. Like, they are both very good in their roles as well. Um, so I'm not, I'm not taking away from them at all. I don't mean to. Um, but the manner in which Gladstone's performance was so subtle, I think, is what differentiates it from the rest for me. Yeah, sometimes you're, you know, you, you're the 2018 Houston Rockets and you just so happen to be playing against the 2018 Golden State Warriors. You've, you're great in your own right. You know, you're a championship worthy or caliber team. In, in this case, they're Oscar worthy actresses, but, uh, you know, only one can win. Yeah, and, and that's, it's tough, you know, as someone who wants to see the best things rewarded and awarded. Uh, it's tough to see a performance. I mean, one of them is not going to win, or multiple are not going to win. Only one can win, um, and that's it's, it's frustrating. But such is the game. Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to pick a category now that I think is fascinating, right. um, and that's this is the one that always I'm always interested in. And that's the directing category. Yes. So the five nominees for best directing in a feature film for 2023 you've got justine trier for anatomy of a fall martin scorsese for killers of the flower moon oppenheimer by christopher nolan you've got yorgos lanthimos for poor things and then, uh, again, a movie that neither of us have seen, but uh, a director that I am familiar with, Jonathan Glazer, with the zone of interest. But yeah, what were your thoughts on that uh, directing category, Sagar? Yeah, so I, like you said, I had not seen Zone of Interest, so I've only seen four of these nominees. Um, again, they're all very good direct, directing 
uh, showings, I guess. Um, they're all very well-made movies. Um, personally, I'd pick Chris Nolan for Oppenheimer. And I'm guessing it, it's going to go that way at the in the end of, uh, as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty stacked. It the is. fact that uh, you've got um, a couple of legends in uh, the ultimate legend in Martin Scorsese, and then somebody that I think has, over the last decade or so, has put himself in the realm of being like one of the top two or three directors alive, even though I'm, I'm a little bit lower on him than most in Christopher Nolan. Um, and then, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos has made some, some really good films, including uh, a film that uh, was nominated for best picture a few years ago in, um, oh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, the also, favorite? The favorite with also featured yeah. Emma Stone. Uh, so you know he's somebody that obviously has a pretty high profile. Jonathan Glazer as well, and then Justine Trier getting the I would say the surprise nomination here. Um, but it's also I think pretty fascinating. The I think there's there's a decent uh, uh, amount of snubs in this category. Yeah, uh, I think. Alexander Payne for the holdovers is someone that I would have seriously considered. Um, Celine Song for yeah. Past Lives. Uh, given that, you know, that movie, interesting that Past Lives got a Best Picture nomination, but not much else. It got one, I think, the script screenwriting. Yeah. Original screenplay, excuse me. But I think Celine's song, I mean, if, if there's anything in that movie that makes that special, I think the directing might be... Uh, this, the screenplay is is really good, too, but I think the directing yeah. is also up there. Um, and then also David Fincher for The Killer. Uh, I think, again, I'm that's a movie that I'm higher on than, than most people. Um, also, Sean Durkin for The Iron Claw. I think all of those are... Oh, and I think one of the, the biggest snubs as well, given that... Uh, it was, you know, this cultural touchstone. It made yep. a ton of money. Um, you know, it... Uh, I think in certain ways, I, I actually would argue it's a better movie than, than Oppenheimer, but Greta Gerwig with Barbie is also another one that I think was uh, um, her in concert with uh, Margot Robbie not being selected and then the, the, the one nominee... Was uh, Ryan Gosling in the acting well, two category? Was, two acting nominees was was slight was was quite ironic. They did get two nominees in acting. Oh right, yeah, they got uh, the um, Ferreira for supporting, right? Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, you're right. That is a bit ironic that you know the two women behind the movie did not get recognized. Um, it's it's a strange look. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, we talked about how both their categories are incredibly stacked this year. Um, whereas it's our, it's it's fair to say that, I mean, or I guess you could argue that uh, the best supporting actor and best uh, supporting actress, where Gosling and Ferrari got their nominations, are not as stacked, arguably. Um, well, yeah. Was there any other? Um, 
Was there any other categories or snubs that you wanted to discuss before we wrap up here? I feel like we've been uh, we've been recording for quite a while, but uh, I, I've been thoroughly enjoying this. Is was yeah? Was there anything yeah. else that stood out to you? A couple things, two things, if you don't mind. My okay, yeah, absolutely. That. You mentioned how uh, it's it was surprising to see Past Lives get a Best Picture nomination, but not really mentioned anywhere else in the in the nominations. It only got one other nomination. Um, I do think it's a little strange that. The Academy as a voting body can say this movie is one of the best of the year, but that nobody behind the movie who worked on it should get recognized for it. Yeah, or like uh, the individual elements aren't worth right. It's a it's a little weird to me. Yeah. Um, you know, Celine Song for directing, or Greta Lee for best support, uh, best lead actress, or either of the male actresses, Tao Yu and lead actor, or John Magaro, supporting actor. I think they were all worthy of it. Score as well, cinematography, editing. All of these things I thought it honestly excelled in. Past Lives is, for those that are listening that have not seen Past Lives, it is a beautiful film. It is, um, again, like I I brought up that uh, Across the Spider-Verse is in my top five. Past Lives is is in my top five films of 2023 as well. It is is, is really truly an astounding achievement. It is, and to see it be so good in so many ways and not get the recognition. Um, it's unfortunate. I, I was frustrated for quite a while and I, I still am. Um, um, and the other thing I was surprised by was Spider-Verse not getting a nomination for best original score. Um, that one felt like a lock to me, to be honest. I think the score of that movie is incredible. Yeah. Um, and I've seen all the nominations all the films nominated for Best Original Score. Um, and there are some good scores there, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think I'd pick Spiders for a couple of those. Yeah, so let, let me just go through the, the group here. We've sure. got Laura Cartman for American Fish uh, Fiction. We've got John Williams, the legend for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We've got Robbie Robertson for Killers of the Flower Moon. Ludwig... Gordonson for Oppenheimer and Jerskin Fendricks for Poor Things. I probably butchered all of those pronunciations, but um, yeah, uh, I think again the 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 Spider Verse thing. I just goes back to right. It's an animated film. It's not right. It's not a serious film, sort of thing. And that's uh, it's it's unfortunate because. Both Spider-Verse films, the 2018 uh, Into the Spider-Verse and then this past year's Across the Spider-Verse, I think are both masterpieces in the, in their medium of animation. And this idea that they should be looked less looked as less lesser because they're animated is insane to me. To me, honestly, um, I don't know. I I could say a lot of things that I shouldn't uh, about the way that animated movies are considered by by the academy um it's it's just frustrating to see films that are so so good at in certain ways not get the recognition yeah the um oppenheimer led the way with i believe 13 nominations i think poor things was second with 11 yeah um if uh, if Oppenheimer is to win anything, which frankly, I mean, again, 
I think Oppenheimer is a really good movie. I don't think it should win too many of these categories. I, I will say that original score, I do think it should be up there as potentially the favorite there in that category. I think the score is is pretty phenomenal in that film. I'll just say right now, if you're anti-Oppenheimer for the Oscars, I think March 10th is not going to be a great night for you. Yeah. I mean, Oscar night is usually, uh, there's usually more frustrations than things that <laughs> I'm genuinely excited about. I mean, um, even like, even the year Moonlight won, and I was so excited about that because that was my number one movie of that year. Uh, there was that whole controversy with that in La La Land. And so it was like uh, all the all the people for Moonlight had to feel sad or sorry that like, oh, this this thing happened where this other group thought they had won and then they didn't. So uh, it's it's usually a little bit of a mess. It usually is a letdown. But, uh, you know, I'm going to be there watching every minute of it, Sagar. You know that. Yeah. So I guess we should, I don't know, I don't want to take the reins or anything like that. But before we sign off, what would you say you would pick for best picture and best director? What would your picks be? So you're you're asking me what I would choose or what I yeah. what am I predicting what I think will happen? Why not both? All right. So for for best picture out of these choices based on what you've seen obviously you haven't seen all of them so Yeah, out of these choices man, it's tough. Uh I like I said I still need to do my Killers of the Flower Moon rewatch. It'd probably be between that or past lives would be my pick. Okay. If I had to guess. It's probably, yeah, my guess is Oppenheimer. I think you're right. What would be your pick, your pick, not your prediction? Oh, it's like, it's really tough. It's a really strong year this year. Of the options, of the nominees. Of what I've seen, I go either Oppenheimer or Past Lives. I between those two, I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I um, like I said, anything outside of Maestro, I I wouldn't be mad if any of the films won, unless it's Maestro. If it's Maestro, like I'm gonna chuck the remote at the television. <laughs> well. The sake of your TV, I'm guessing that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, Sagar, I appreciate you coming on and uh, going through a bunch of different subjects this evening. It was an absolute blast. As always, man, I appreciate the invite. And again, uh, why don't you just tell the people real quick again, a little rundown of uh, your Twitter handle and what they might see on there. Anything else you got going on? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Blazers by Sagar. That's S-A-G-A-R. Um, you'll see me tweeting about sports, movies. This is what we talked about on here tonight. Um, that's basically the same thing you're going to find on my Twitter feed. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great time and I appreciate it. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a big reason why we've become really good friends is our, uh, I don't think there's a single person on this planet that I think our my interests align with more than the man I'm talking with tonight. So, uh, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure, buddy. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to get you on again soon. Probably uh, this, this offseason we got free agency coming up. I'm looking forward to it.